I want to start with a little quiz. This will be easy for you, I think, and especially if you're a movie person. But uh, when, when you hear, I'm going to play a couple songs for you, and I just want you to shout out, like, what movie you think of when you hear this song. Okay, let's go ahead and play that first one. Jaws, right? That's an easy one, right? Does anybody else, like, look for sharks behind you when you hear that? All right, how about this one? This one be even easier. Didn't even get the first note out. Star Wars, and my daughter Audrey's bouncing in her seat over there. She loves this movie. All right. This one may be a little trickier. All right? You can stop that one, Lisa. What is it? King of the world, right? Yeah, you hear those songs and it immediately takes you back to that movie. And maybe it takes you back to the first time you saw that movie or the first time you experienced uh, that song. Well, what these songs are to the respective movies, I think that song, Oh Holy Night, is to Christmas, don't you? It like just takes you to that night uh, where you can experience, uh, you can almost like smell the animals, right? You can almost feel the cool air. You can almost sense the excitement around Christmas. It just takes you back to that moment. I mean, can, can anything, as far as Christmas songs, be more classic than O Holy Night? <clears throat> I want you to imagine for me, uh, for a moment, you're a kid again, back in the church you grew up in, if you went to church, or if you didn't grow up in church, imagine you're at the elementary school's Christmas program, but when they used to call it a Christmas program before it became the holiday extravaganza or the celebration of the solstice or whatever it is at your school now. But imagine you're at the Christmas program, and, and the concert is about to come on, and the last soloist gets up. And you know what they're going to sing, right? The last soloist gets up, and a hush falls over the crowd. Everybody listens, and then the song begins, Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining, and deep down inside of you, don't you just tense up a little bit? Because you know that as good as that sounds, like that moment is coming, where they're going to have to go way up here and hit that note. Now, I don't worry about that with Cameron, right? But there are times when I've been in church, maybe even in the past, in this church, and that song came on, and I thought, Oh! I don't know if she's going to make it. (laughs) You know what I mean? And so the song starts to get good, a thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices. Now, we all know what happens at that moment, right? If you're in the audience, you start to tense up. Your body clenches. Your teeth grind together because everything hangs in the balance. Whether she hits that note or not is going to determine whether or not Christmas is ruined for you, right? (laughs) We've all had to sit through painful renditions of O Holy Night, haven't we? And the next few moments, make or break Christmas. Fall on your knees. Oh, hear the angel voices. And then go for it. O night, divine. O night, when Christ was born. And you finally take a deep breath because you know Christmas is going to go on. Because they hit that note. They did a great job. Oh, Holy Night tells that story. It reminds us that Christmas was that first holy night, that it was holy and sacred, that it was set apart. And I think the words to that song are so rich and deep with theological truths. And sometimes we just sing them, and then we go on to what's next. But that song reminds us as Christians, if we're Christians, it reminds us of the hope that we have uh, this Christmas. It reminds us of the hope that we have in Jesus. And if you're not a Christian... 
you still have that hope before us. Because what I've noticed in our culture is that even non-Christians love to celebrate Christmas. And don't just love the gift-giving part of Christmas, but love the idea behind Christmas, that it's a season of giving, that it's a season when we're all on our best behavior, right? Well, that comes because we celebrate the birth of Christ. And so with help from this great Christmas song, we're going to, over the next four weeks, we're going to be exploring some life-changing truths in this Christmas series that we're calling The Thrill of Hope. You know, and so here's what's going to happen over the next few weeks. On Christmas Eve, we'll start there, Christmas Eve, December 24th. We're having two services uh, here at this campus and also at our Noblesville campus, 3.30 and 5 o'clock. And we're going to look at, at this line from the, car- the, the carol, Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared. You know, Christmas Eve is the night we celebrate that he appeared. What, what made that night holy was the birth of the Son of God. It was the night when God broke through time and space and made a personal appearance on planet Earth. He came down in the form of a man and came to live with us, and, and that's in the form of Jesus. And that's the night we point back to the night when everything changed. Now, the Lexus December to Remember sales event is not when everything changed, <laughs> despite what the commercials might tell you. Christmas Eve is when everything changed. Another week, we're going to talk about a new and glorious morn. That, that line describes that every one of us can start over. That, that forgiveness and redemption and salvation are now accessible to us. They're available to all of us. And then another week, we're going to look at maybe the most tender line, the soul felt its worth. If you ever feel like you can't measure up, if you ever feel like you don't have much value, you'll want to be here next week when we talk about the soul felt its worth because God showed up for you. He showed up for me, and we're going to celebrate that. And then uh, the one week, we're going to spend the... the some time on the great crescendo of that song, fall on your knees. It's a reminder to us that God is a God, uh, and, and we're not, <laughs> right? And, and we would like to be sometimes, but I make a terrible God. We're all worshipers of the God that came on that holy night. But today, I want to start with the line that so many of us can relate to this Christmas. The weary world rejoices. Can you just look around and admit that we're living in a weary world right now? I don't have to name the places or the events for you, do I? There's so much going on in this world that makes us weary. But today we're reminded that on that holy night, the weary world rejoices. And what I'm praying, what I've been asking God this week is that because of that holy night, that he would show us that we have reasons to rejoice. And we have a reason for hope. I I think weary is a great word to describe that world that Jesus was born into as well. People were weary of war. You know, uh, terrorism didn't start in the 20th century or the 21st century. It was prevalent even back in the very first century. In the middle of the Roman world, a group of terrorists known as the Sicarii uh, roamed the streets. That word means little sword, right? And uh, these radicals, what they would do is they would hide a dagger inside their cloak. You've heard the term cloak and dagger, uh, like for a secret operation. That's where this came from. These Roman terrorists would roam the streets with a cloak and a dagger, and they would go around and they would stab their enemies and then put their dagger back in their cloak and walk off like nothing happened. Uh, that was the first form of terrorism. Uh, and people were weary from terrorism. They were weary from economic chaos, trading what had been uh, tra- trading in like the area among all the nations had been strong, but it was diminishing. Investments, which what's made a profit, were not making profits anymore. Interest rates soared. I'm talking about Israel in the first century. While property values fell, I know none of you have any knowledge of that firsthand, but it happened in the first century. Ordinary citizens saw their savings consumed in taxes, 
People were weary of the economy. People were weary of a civilization that had lost its moral compass. The nuclear family was falling apart. Divorces were increasing. I'm talking about ancient Rome. Orphans roamed the streets. Sexuality had no boundaries. It was every man, woman, and child for themselves. It was a weary world in the first century. That's the world into which Jesus was born. Weary is a great word to describe the world we live in today. Uh, Bob Russell, who's a friend of ours at this church, he was the former uh, lead pastor at Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, just a great uh, mentor and friend in ministry, said this, terrorists create chaos by mass murderers. Rogue dictators have access to nuclear weapons. Millions of helpless refugees from ravaged nations have nowhere to live. The world economy is in a funk. Moral values have become so inverted that evil has become good and good evil. Racial strife and political correctness threaten to divide America. Merry Christmas, church. Aren't you glad you came to be encouraged this morning? We live in a weary world. And for some of you, that weary world doesn't end at your front door. That has come right into your house and you're weary from fighting for your marriage. You're weary from never having uh, enough money to get, make it through the month. You're weary from uh, physical pain as your body gets older and sicker. You're weary from the loss of someone you love this year, and you can't imagine it's going to be your first Christmas without them. You can't imagine what that's going to look like. You're weary because you're lonely, and you feel like you don't have anybody. Weary from a job that doesn't seem to satisfy. Weary from your past weary about what the future might hold. We live in a weary world. But what does that song say? The weary world rejoices. The weary world is filled with joy because on that very first Christmas, God sent a messenger to declare, Luke 2, 10, says, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for some people. No, which will be for all the people on this holy night. God gave us a reason for joy. He gave us a reason to rejoice, a reason for hope. But joy, true joy, can often seem really elusive, can it? Uh, Dr. Brene Brown, who wrote the book Daring Greatly, has some great, um, brilliant insights, I think, on joy. She says this. She says, joy is not happiness. Joy and happiness are two different things. Happiness depends on happenstance. I love that. Happiness depends on happenstance. But joy is extraordinary happiness that is independent of what happens to us. Now, my guess is you've heard that before, that joy and happiness are not the same thing and that joy uh, doesn't depend on your circumstances. Uh, But here's the part of Brown's research that was really interesting to me, the part I never recognized or considered. Brown said that the reason many people don't experience joy is that we tend to dress-rehearse tragedy. Do you do that in your life? Do you dress-rehearse tragedy? I, I, I hadn't heard of that, but here's what it means. We dress rehearse tragedy when things are going great and we say to ourselves, this can't last, right? Something bad's bound to happen. This is too good. I've got it too good. We, we dress rehearse tragedy when a relationship's going really well and we think to ourselves, this is too good. He's going to leave. She's going to leave. That's not going to last. I wonder what's coming. We dress rehearse tragedy when a relationship is going well and, and we think to ourselves, uh, you know, uh, what, what's going to happen? Like, what's going to happen? Or when a job is going too well, and we think, you know what? This company can't always be like this. Something's going to happen. Or your boss calls you into their office and says, hey, we need to talk. And you go, oh, okay, here it goes. All right, how am I going to feed my family? What am I going to do? And you start going through those motions, right? You're dress rehearsing tragedy. You know, near the end of his life, Mark Twain said, I'm an old man, and I've known many, great many troubles, but most of them never happened. Dress rehearsing tragedy. It's almost like we're afraid to let ourselves experience joy. 
We, we think if we give ourselves over to joy that we're going to be blindsided by something bad. So we protect our hearts by dress rehearsing tragedy. Maybe one of the reasons so many of us love the Christmas season, even if you're not a Christian, is that for a few short, short weeks, we let nostalgia become a substitute for joy. You know, we think about what Christmas meant to us as a kid. You know, joy is elusive, but all of us can muster up a Merry Christmas when we're out in public. And we know that we won't find lasting joy in Christmas parties and brightly lit, uh, lit trees and wrapped presents and reruns of It's a Wonderful Life. But if those nostalgic, warm, fuzzy feelings help us, maybe they bring a temporary substitute for the joy we long to experience. But Christmas is so much more than nostalgia. Christmas means we have reason for joy, for deep, lasting joy. Maybe that's why God's messenger said on that first Christmas, do not be afraid. Could it be that what that messenger was saying was, don't dress rehearse tragedy. Stop being scared of what could happen. I'm bringing you a real reason to celebrate, a real reason to have joy for now and for all of eternity. And what is that reason for joy? Well, one of Jesus' closest friends, the Apostle John, had something to say about that. The first uh, few verses of a letter he wrote, which we now know as 1 John, are some of the most profound Christmas passages in the Bible. Now, as we look at it this morning, you might think Christmas passage. There's nothing in this passage about Mary or shepherds or a manger. Or... And you might be right. Christmas, this passage doesn't describe the events of Christmas. What the passage does do is it tells us what the events of Christmas mean. And that's critically important because true, deep, lasting joy is found in the meaning of the Christmas story. And so John begins, 1 John 1, verse 1. He says this, that which was from the beginning, he's talking about Jesus, okay? Jesus was from the beginning. John always writes about this whenever he writes. Anytime we see John writing in scripture, he talks about Jesus being from the beginning, at the beginning, uh, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. John talks about that all the time. So that which was from the beginning, the personal expression of the living God, the son of God, Jesus, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. And so John looks at that. He says, we've heard him. We've seen him with our own eyes. We've touched him. As you read these words, can't you just picture John at the witness stand in a courtroom giving his testimony? I heard him. I saw him. I walked with him. I saw him hungry. I saw him killed I saw him on the cross. I saw him walking after I saw him dead. He's giving his testimony. What John is saying is that the first reason we have for joy, the first reason we have hope, is because this is real. This really happened. John, the eyewitness, describes that, that the Jesus, God, came to earth in the person of Jesus. Christmas is not just some nostalgic, made-up story. It's not a fairy tale. It really happened. In fact, if you're here and you have um, very little reason to trust the Bible, if you're not a Christian and you don't have a lot of history with this, I want you to know, uh, because I've heard this misconception a lot, there is zero, there is zero debate in the scientific community about whether Jesus really existed or not. There is zero. Uh, even if you don't read the Bible, you should know that some very famous and trusted non-Christian historians People like Josephus and Tacitus and Pliny the Elder reference Jesus in their historical writings. 
And there's little dispute with the facts set forth in the Gospels. The only dispute anybody has is over the resurrection or not. The birth of Jesus is real. It really happened. John is reminding us it's not just a nice story. It's not just something we read our kids on Christmas Eve. It's not just something to bring us holiday cheer. It's real. This is real. It's true. Jesus has come. And John continues, 1 John 1, verse 2, the life. Now, uh, if you remember a few months ago, we talked about this word life, that there are two words for life in the Bible. There's like a bios, like a biological life, like my body's alive. And there's a zoe, which is the uh, spiritual life. Well, that's the word that John uses here, the zoe life. He says, the life appeared and we have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you that the eternal life, which was with the Father, has appeared to us. John's aim is to announce that Jesus is how we get eternal life. He came from eternal life, and he's how we get eternal life. With that statement, John declares the second reason we have for hope, this is life. The Christmas story is life. To know Jesus is to know eternal life. And because he is eternal life, those who have put their trust in him are guaranteed eternal life as well, guaranteed forgiveness for sin. The one who is life itself, the one who is eternal life. Notice John doesn't just say that Jesus has life or gives life. He is life. He's eternal life. Pastor Tim Keller uh, says it this way. He says, in every other religion, the founder is a prophet or a sage. And the founder says, here is the way for you to find eternal life. Do this, do this, do this, and you'll be saved. He says, but Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Christianity does not say that Jesus is a great prophet pointing us the way to God and how we can save ourselves. Jesus Christ, according to Christmas, is God come to save us, to do what we can't do for ourselves, to know him is eternal life. I mean, are you tired of trying to measure up? Are you tired of trying to fit in? Are you weary from trying to prove yourself? Are you exhausted from trying to be good enough? Here's the good news. Somebody came to do that for you. You're off the hook. Jesus is life. Jesus says, come to me, all you are weary, and I will give you rest. Christmas means you are saved by grace. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. Life is yours just by accepting the gift that was given to you at Christmas. It's the gift of Jesus, the gift of life in Jesus. This is real. This is life. But John continues, verse 3, We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. In other words, we want all of us to agree together in this. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus came that very first Christmas to be in fellowship with us, to be in relationship with us. You see, God isn't content uh, to be a concept to be believed or, or a powerful force to worship. He wants us to know him, to experience intimacy with him, to to have a close, loving relationship with him and with others. God became human to be close to us. This is someone we could relate to, someone we could experience intimacy with. The, The disciples, including John, knew this better than anybody. They walked with Jesus. They saw him hungry and tired and And they saw him get angry and they saw him joyful and they knew that he was a a man just like us who came to live a life just like us and, and to have a relationship with us, to experience intimacy with us. And with that, John declares, this is love. This is love. Jesus is love. You know, if you're a 
a film buff or if you love old movies, you've probably seen more than one Alfred Hitchcock film. And what you may know is that Hitchcock made it a habit of writing himself into most of his movies. About three-quarters of Alfred Hitchcock movies have a cameo appearance by Alfred Hitchcock, the director himself. And in fact, Alfred Hitchcock, uh, he talked about why he did that. He said this. He said, listen to this. I wormed my way into my own pictures as a spy. A director should see how the other half lives. One movie critic says of Hitchcock's appearances that his appearances create a special bond between filmmaker and viewer. Through his cameos, Hitchcock becomes an ambassador between you and the world he created. How good is that? You ever think about that? God wrote himself into our picture to become an ambassador between him and the world he created. How good is that? Who knew you could learn so much from a Hitchcock film? You know, Christmas meant the one who created us, the one who loves us, wrote himself into our story. He became like one of us so that he could better understand. He came because he wants to have a relationship with us. He came because he wants to love us, and he wants us to love him. John describes for us how Christmas and the birth of Jesus proclaims this is real, this is life, this is love. And then in verse 4, I think he tells us why he wants us to know all this. He says, we write this to make our joy complete. Here's what John wants. He, he wants to help us realize that the joy of embracing the birth and life of Jesus is greater than all things. It's a lasting joy that can help us in the pain of a broken relationship. Uh, it's a lasting joy that can help us in the anxiety that accompanies a crisis uh, or follows a crisis. It's a lasting joy that can help us through our financial worries. It's a lasting joy that can help us even in the uncertainties of the world, even when we're fearful, when we're scared about what's going to happen next, John says, hey, we have a reason for joy in Jesus. Joy is ours for the taking. But joy is something we have to practice. You know, it's not something that comes easy. Earlier, I referenced Brene Brown's uh, research on joy, and she went on to say this. She said, joy is something you have to work at. You ever think about that? You can work at becoming more joyful she explains that though through more than 12 years of research with thousands and thousands of people on the topic of joy, she's never met anyone that she would call joyful that doesn't actively practice gratitude. Gratitude's not an attitude, Brown says. It's a practice. It's something you work at and cultivate every day. Joyful people, she says, practice gratitude by actively appreciating things in their life. You know, if you were here last week, you heard Ben Krauss talk about uh, he gave us a challenge. You remember that challenge? He gave us a challenge that for the next 30 days uh, to write down three things every day that we're thankful for with no repeats over the 30 days. Have any of you been doing that? Anybody been doing that? A few of you? Our family's been kind of trying to practice this at home. We've done fairly well. We've done a few. Um, so I'm just confessing up front, right? But it's not always easy. And especially to think of, well, it's 90 things over 30 days that you're thankful for. It's pretty hard. But when you dig down into the root of your life and you think about all the gifts that God's given you and all the things that you have that you don't deserve and you look around and you think, how did I get here? Like, how, how did I get to this place where I've got this thing and these fam this family and these people in my life and these friends and this God who loves me no matter what? How did I get here? And as a, a pastor friend of mine says, you feel like a turtle on a fence post. Like you don't know how you got there, but you know you have some help, had some help along the way, right? 
this Christmas, let's not just settle for nostalgia. Why would we do that when we have a real reason to be joyful? You know, as our family has tried to be mindful of this, uh, I've noticed on the days that I do it, and I've been doing it in my journal too, that it makes a difference. That when I look around and I thank God, God, thank you for giving me uh, a family that understands, um, you know, my personality and my quirks and is accepting of me. God, thank you for giving me uh, this neighborhood to live in where I've got friends all around me. And even though we don't like everybody in the neighborhood, and I know you don't either, but if I look around, man, there are some lovely people that live around us that would do anything for us. And thank, thank you for that, God. You know, you can choose, you can choose to focus on the circumstances of your life. Or you can choose to actively practice gratitude. You can choose to focus on the things you can't change. Or you can choose to change your attitude and have joy. We have a saying in my house. We say this, today my choice is to rejoice. Today my choice is to rejoice. We've been saying that for a few years now. And I don't know if it helps or not. But it sure uh, helps us think about that even in the face of a weary world or a weary house, that we can have an attitude of rejoicing. When you wake up each morning, instead of letting all the weariness of the world rush at you, think about the reasons you have for joy. What do you think of first thing when you wake up in the morning? Do you go through your to-do list? All right, I'm awake. Here's all the stuff I got to do. Think, 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 think. Or do you go, I'm awake. God, thanks for waking me up this morning. You didn't have to do that. You can make that choice to rejoice. You know, um, a, couple, a few weeks ago, about six weeks ago, uh, our family went on vacation, and um, there's a lot of great stuff that happens on vacation, but one of our favorite things is we get cable television <clears throat> because we don't have it at home, and we get to catch up on all the great viewing that we missed, and um, we, uh, we watch HGTV a lot. Yes, I know Sports Center's on at the same time, and no, I don't wear a skirt, but we watch HGTV, and... Um, this last time, we found this, this show called Fixer Upper. You guys seen the show on HGTV? Chip and Joanna Gaines, and they go into these houses. So what they do, here's the theory, if you, guys, and if you've never seen this show. Um, so they, they take a couple or family through uh, three houses in various states of disrepair, and they give them a vision for what this house could become. And so they'll take them usually into one that's almost done, that they've got like $10,000 to do some painting and stuff like that too. And then they'll take them through one usually that's in the middle, and then they'll take them through a wreck. And like there's a house that's for sale for $10,000 and you're basically going to tear the thing down and build it back up. But hey, it's going to be in your budget and it's going to take us, you know, however long. And so there are two types of people that come on this show. There are the people that are afraid when they walk into some of those houses, right? There are the people that walk in and go, oh, I just don't know if I can handle this. And then there are the people that choose to look past the circumstances of the house, right? And to see the potential of what it could become. And those are the people that usually buy the $10,000 house and put $150,000 into it, and they have a mansion on the other end. And you know what? What happens is those shows are always the best shows. The people who can look past the circumstances and look into the potential of what that house can be, those are always the best shows. Do you know why? Because Chip and Joanna do their best work in the most broken homes. Do you know that our God does his best work in the most broken vessels? Do you know that? He says, my power is made perfect in weakness. That when things look bleakest, when circumstances don't look good, when we're down to our last man, our last woman, our last chance, our our very last nerve, when we're living in a weary world, that's when God can best show himself. 
and make something beautiful out of a disaster. Be encouraged. Choose joy. Because Jesus is alive. And a weary world rejoices. Hey, I'm going to invite my friend Cameron back up here. Um, we wanted to close. We're thinking about how to close the service this morning. And uh, Cameron just got back for a, a trip, a week-long trip to Albania to one of our ministry partners over there. And I want him to tell you more about that. Now it's working. Uh, I'll put this one back then. So I was actually a late addition to the uh, Albanian team uh, from Genesis. <clears throat> they uh, had been planning it for a while, and I'd been praying for them, but I wasn't planning on going. And uh, a couple weeks before they left, they had uh, someone had to drop out with an illness. And uh, as they got more clarity on what exactly they were going to be doing there, uh, Paul Mumal felt I would be a good fit for the team. And so he asked me, "Would hey, would you like to go to Albania? Sure, in two weeks. <laughs> Let me ask my wife. Uh, so I did. So I went with the team. Um, this is the team uh, we've got uh, from Genesis, and uh, it was a really great team. And uh, Albania is a place that I had didn't know anything about. Um, we uh, and I kind of got briefed like on the way there, uh, in, in some senses. But uh, this was uh, some pictures that I took there. Uh, this was actually not uh, two girls who are in love. Uh, this is actually common there that uh, friends would walk around like this. And they're a very uh, affectionate people and very uh, social people. And so I think like the next clip, that's just like how they walk around. And even uh, old men walk around arm in arm together. And I just loved that. It was just a really uh, neat part of their culture that uh, I didn't know about. Um, but the primary purpose that we went there, that the church there called uh, ICF Tirana of about 100 people that we met. Um, these are some friends uh, that we made, that I made, that go to ICF Tirana. These are uh, all these guys are high school or college aged. And um, ICF Toronto is about 100 people, and they are doing uh, some really neat things to uh, engage with their community. Uh, Albania is, is, I think, uh, 1% Christian and is predominantly a Muslim country. Um, but these uh, Pastor Altine and uh, Worship Pastor Mariol, um, they uh, have found some creative ways to engage with uh, people in the area. And one of the things that they've done is they've done uh, two years in a row now an English camp for free uh, that attracts a lot of college-age students that are looking for uh, opportunity. And so um, they come to these English camps, and uh, there was actually 700 students that came to their the most recent English camp. And so they're looking to f continue to find a way to engage with these people. And that's where we came in. Uh, we had what we called them American Nights uh, because they think Americans are cool. And they're right. <laughs> we are. Uh, and so we, we put on these, uh, like, services, uh, three services a night, the same service, because they have a small room, so we couldn't do it all at once, and uh, three nights in a row. So it ended up being nine services, which made me really grateful that we only do two services at Genesis, one every week. Uh, we, but we got to share, uh, Jim Vaselli got to share his testimony at, uh, uh, at a point, and uh, we, got to, we broke out into smaller groups um, for them to continue practicing their English, and we got to get to know them a little bit. Uh, we separated them to beginner, uh, intermediate, and uh, kind of expert English speakers. Just had a really good time getting to know them. And the whole point of it was really for us to connect them and to connect them to ICF. And so they used the draw of the cool Americans to bring them in. And we used that to kind of point them back to ICF and say, could we met in their church? Um, and so that's actually not a gang sign, so don't be alarmed. Uh, that is actually a reference to the Albanian flag. 
uh, which has uh, um, a bird that has wings, and it's uh, actually a two-headed bird, so that's why there's two thumbs. Uh, and there's all of us doing it. And so um, Steve asked me when I came back, he said, what, what's the headline for your trip to Albania? And I said, the headline is, hope is springing up from this old ground. Because at the end of uh, each night, at the American night, we didn't really hammer them over the head with the Bible too much. We were just trying to develop relationship. Uh, and we invited them to the church service on Sunday where obviously the gospel would be explicit. We did talk about Jesus, uh, but we also just wanted to be, uh, we didn't want to feel like we were bait and switching them too much. Um, but at the end of the American Nights, we would play, uh, I played Beautiful Things by Gunger, which is a song we've done here before. And uh, it was it was amazing. The first time I played it, I looked, uh, I got goosebumps and I was uh, uh, just really emotional. And afterwards, I went and talked to the team and all the team were wiping their eyes like, the singing beautiful things in a Muslim country uh, and singing like a song that says Jesus can make something beautiful out of you. Uh, I love that that really translates through the language barrier. It's a very simple concept. He can make a beautiful thing out of you. And uh, we taught them that. We kind of use it as a vehicle for teaching English again. And so they loved it. And so by by the second and third nights, many of them had their phones out and were like recording it. And they were really engaged with it. And they even sang along a bit with us. And so uh, we've got a clip that we wanted to show you uh, of uh, our Albanian friends singing beautiful things. We wanted to sing uh, this song today. I wanted to continue to show you some more of the faces uh, of Albania. The reason Hope is bringing up from this old ground meant so much to me because that is an old, it's an old area, it's an old country. We got to visit a place, an amphitheater where scholars say it's possible that the Apostle Paul had actually traveled through there. Um, and so to see this old ground, uh, this one little church of 100 people springing up hope uh, through Christ in this old ground of Albania, just incredibly encouraging. And uh, like Paul Paul and I were talking about it. He said, we should be that encouraged when we go home. Like, it's still true. Sometimes on a mission trip, you're encouraged when you're there. When you come back, like, oh, it's back to real life. Like, no, that's real life everywhere, uh, that, that Jesus can make something uh, new out of all of us. And so we're going to sing this song, show you some of the faces of Albania. And as we sing it, if you know it, I'd love for you to sing along. Uh, if not, I'd love for you to sit and think about what this hope means to you. <laughs> 